space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission. To explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the hijinks. I've got a trig midterm tomorrow and I'm being chased by Guido the Killer Pimp. The opportunities. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. And the wisdom. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Kirk here. Scotty, beat me up. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stand by to receive our transmission. Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears with TampaBay.com. And today, we talk about Star Trek from the 80s. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. With me today, he, there's nobody I'd rather storm the neutral zone with than Times Film critic Steve Persaud. Is, is that a, a Star Trek term or something, storm the neutral zone? No, I just really like you a lot. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> if I were human, I believe my response would be... Go to hell. Yeah, well, uh, Daly can't be here anyway because, you know. Sean Daly will be here for the, for the segments, but uh, he wants no part of uh, Star Trek. He was not a, he's not a Trekker. Well, neither am I. Neither yeah. am I. I mean, you, you have uh, a, a decided advantage in geekiness uh, over me in this regard. I do over many men. Don't <laughs> kid yourself. And, 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 and right off the bat, I want to I address this right off the bat. Trekkie or Trekker? Trekker is the uh, preferred nomenclature, to borrow a uh, Big Lebowski term there, and throw that back at you. I love that. Um, yeah, but uh, Trekkie is, is uh, I think it's determined to be more of a uh, frivolous type of phrase, and you know, real, real Star Trek aficionados want this material taken seriously, so it's Trekker. Right. Although, what did you say? Gene Roddenberry, Roddenberry. Yeah. Dean Roddenberry said Trekkie at a uh, con, and someone stood up and said, it's Trekker, and he said... I invented this series, and I say it's Trekkie. Well, he's dead now, so he can't complain. <laughs> right. We'll say Trekker. I, rumor has it that it all goes back to that infamous uh, Saturday Night Live skit with Shatner. Having received all your letters over the years, and, 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 and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to be here, I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean for, for crying out loud, it's, it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. I mean, I mean, how old are you people? What have you done with yourselves? You, you, you must be almost 30. Have you, have you ever kissed a girl? 
Oh no 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 no! The the, the term Trekkie was uh, was bounced around before that. Really? Well, that may be simple, oversimplifying a bit. I'm not sure that anybody who wants to follow a movie franchise or TV franchise to the point of learning a a completely foreign language like <laughs> Klingon or something. I'm not sure that's you, you you can really take that seriously to start with. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, you bring up the idea of movie franchises, so I have to start off with this question: What makes the Star Trek franchise different from other science fiction franchises like Star Wars and Aliens? Well, I think, I think more than anything else, it's the fact that it was a phenomenon before the movies. There was the TV show star, uh, that uh, started in the 1960s. You had the syndication that really sort of picked up the cult atmosphere you know, among devoted fans with it there that carried over into the movies. They had like a, a 10 or 12-year head start before the movies started to try to stitch their – Federation uniforms together and those kinds of things. Uh, with, with Star Wars, that's an immediate type of phenomenon. That's something that nobody really knew what it was until it hit the screens, and then it just blows up. Same thing with, with Aliens. So Star Trek is semi-equal to uh, Lord of the Rings and The yeah, Hobbit. only because they've had a lot of time, books, in, in Star Trek's case, a TV show, to sort of develop this mystique around it, develop this backstory, this history, and try to start one-upping each other in yeah. terms of their uniforms, their props, right. how much Klingon they can speak, that yeah. sort of thing. I, I have my own theory. Um, Star, Star Trek has multiple um, storylines based on multiple villains because at any given time it, they're fighting the Klingons or the Romulans or the Cardassians or the Borg versus uh, – Star Wars basically was uh, rebellion versus the Empire, and then once the Empire was dead, the story ended. And well, Star Wars is essentially a western. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before on our, on our previous Star Wars show. Uh, it, it's basically using those, those western archetypes from the past: the cattle barons versus the sheep farmers, the sheep, sheep ranchers. You know, and they're all battling over the same turf, the same property. With with Star Trek. And Roddenberry was brilliant to do this from the start. I was watching the the, the pilot episode, The Cage. Oh, uh, great the other one! Night. You know, from the start, he had this this angle with it where he was going to make some kind of social comment. Uh, maybe maybe it got more political as time went on, but he wanted to say something about in that particular first episode the concept of beauty and and what it is when when Susan Oliver is revealed to be this this old crone with a hunchback and everything else because the the aliens didn't know how to put her back together again they didn't have any 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 concept of what a human could be like it has that same kind of a uh, a feel as th that old twilight zone episode uh, eye of the beholder where you know the woman wakes up in bed thinks she's hideously ugly after an accident and turns out she's beautiful, but everybody else in the world is ugly and they're just repulsed by her. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. He, he was doing that right from the start. He was more influenced by a, by a Serling uh, than, than uh, right. other folks were. He wasn't necessarily following a, a formula that was real clear cut. I mean, he sort yeah. of almost made his own formula. You could tell, as, as I watched The Cage, and it's the first time I've seen it, because I've never have been a big, big Star Wars or Star Trek fan, as I watch that, I'm thinking, you know, you, I can tell he's trying to sneak this by the network. He's trying to make it look just like every other, you know, Saturday afternoon adventure serial or something like that. But at the same time, he's got, you know, he has a, he has a multiracial cast, for example, you know, which in the mid-1960s would have is practically unheard of on television. Uh, and he has, like we said, the, those kinds of little tidbits of social importance or social, social commentary in there, too. Now I'm just guessing, but you probably have you interviewed anybody from the Star Trek universe of actors? No, 
no, I never had really thought about that before, but no, I have not. Would you ever, is, is there one that you'd want to, if you could pick out just one? Oh, Shatner, definitely. I mean, really? Shat, I think Shatner would be a great guy to go have a few beers with, or martinis, I'm sure, is what he did. <laughs> Dos Eques or something like that. The most interesting man in the world. Um, but I think from a personal standpoint, since I don't know about Star Trek, I would have to go, I would have to want to interview somebody who has some kind of talent that I do know something about. So it would probably be a Marina Sirtis, Counselor Troy. Wow. Because she was pretty hot. <laughs> well, we all have our priorities. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's what I know. Uh, I think I'm going to go with um, Leonard Nimoy. For some ne- Nimoy would be, would be uh, uh, very interesting to talk to, I think, and especially after seeing this movie. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to know, if we're not blowing anything here, I would like to know what he thinks Shatner will think about him taking some of Shatner's plumb lines from him for yeah. this, in this new movie, too. So Won't tell you what they are. Yeah, we should but, say right off the bat, obviously we're doing this podcast because the new Star Trek movie comes out this weekend, uh, titled simply Star Trek, and I call it the prequel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve and I both saw it uh, last weekend here in Tampa, sneak preview. Was, got you, got you into yeah, the screening. God, he's, got you uh, treated like royalty. Yeah, you, you got to see, you know, just what kind of respect I do command. Unbelievable. Outside front the front row, here. front row seat, mm-hmm. taped off. Yeah, taped off, stuff, little yeah. velvet rope and everything. Yep. And um, so we're going to talk about that after the break. But first, I want to go through each of the Star Trek movies of the 80s and get your take on them, starting with, and I'm going to grandfather it in, um, Star Trek One: The Motion Picture. Decker, I'm going to key the final sequence through the ground test computer. Decker, you don't know what that'll do to you. Yes, I do, Doctor. Decker, don't. Jim, I want this. As much as you wanted the Enterprise, I want this. 1979 release. It, I'm, I'm surprised that you are violating your code of the 80s here, but not by much. It was released, you know, what, the first week in December uh, of 1979, too. So it was still playing in theaters when your favorite decade rolled around. You know, I, I saw the, the teaser preview trailer for this on television the other night. Um, and it's very cheesy, but what got me about it is they have Orson Welles, Citizen Kane himself, narrating the introductions or reintroductions to the cast. You know, it's, it's William Shatner is Captain James T. Kirk. <laughs> you know, he's just going through the whole cast like that. I'm like, that's Orson Welles. And of course, I, f- I forgot that Robert Wise directed it. Robert Wise, of course, did uh, um, Day the Earth Stood Still. He did uh, West Side Story, which, of course, has a lot of things to do, a lot, a lot in common with Star Trek. Uh, and the Andromeda Strain, too, which is actually, if you think about it, when, you, when I reflect back on this movie, it reminds me a lot of the Andromeda Strain in that it's technically interesting and emotionally flat yeah. in, in that regard, too. So I, Wise I th- was on his game. Yeah, and I think it almost kind of um, distinguishes all the star- a lot of the Star Trek movies of the 80s in the sense that um, it's more intellectual than they are emotional to some degree. Yeah, it, it goes off every once in a while, and we'll, and we'll say where it does. Think about it, think about it though, the fact that it came out two, three years after Star Wars really sort of broke out this whole sci-fi you know, idea and, and using special effects, miniatures, these kinds of things. Uh, Robert Wise, in that regard, was a, a perfect guy to do that because he knew the mechanics that he worked with, with Andromeda Strain, with Day the Earth Stood Still, if, as, as primitive as they were, comparatively speaking. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where the technology appear, uh, appears to have been all they had in mind. 
uh, with this thing too. I I think this is one of the first movies, if not the first movie, that was um, a a nominee or was in the first group of nominees for an Academy Award for Best Special Effects too. I mean th- that kind of science, that kind of technology in movies yeah. was very very young still. Uh, so it's it, well, it was it, nice. was it was an eye popper. It was nice as as, as a long time Trekkie. It was nice to see the the TV show reimagined with a huge. Uh, 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 special effects budget, and I think that's what appealed to everybody at first. Um, the story is so boilerplate that, and it's been repeated so many times in so many episodes and so many movies. Basically, in powerful alien cloud called Vigor. you can't have a villain that's a cloud. Uh, yeah, it sorry. happens over and over again. Is approaching Earth, uh, destroying everything in its path, and it turns out that Vigor is actually Voyager Six, um, the satellite from Earth that's discovered by aliens and then sent back. I, I, I hear clicking. I, I don't understand. What I know. You're saying. I know. But I'm telling you, that's that is. If you go, if you go through all the Star Trek movies, there's always some sinister force approaching Earth, you know, intentionally or unintentionally destroying everything in its path, and it's up to Kirk and the friends to to save it over but, and over again. But also, typically, that pesky little time space continuum is going to you know jump in there and screw things up for yeah. them where they can't get it done right away. So. We don't see it in this movie. We do see it in a lot of the other ones. Oh um, yes, we do. We'll a, talk later. The um, the um, the motion picture itself, uh, kind of mixed reviews. Most people uh, don't. I don't own it. I, I don't think I ever would. Um, it still earned a fair amount of money and um, enough to get uh, a sequel squozen out of it. Although Gene Roddenberry was uh, forced out of the picture um, as a result because they just didn't think it was all that good. But the good thing is it leads us to 1982 and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Khan! You like this one, don't you? Who does Finally, finally. Uh, now, I've admitted to you before, and I've admitted in print, that they, they actually the first Star Trek movie that I watched was uh, 1994, I think, the uh, Star Trek Generations movie. Yeah. The, the, first, the, the, the first meeting between Kirk and Picard. And, of course, the only reason I saw it then was because I was working in this job. So it was it was it was a gig. It wasn't something I was going out of my way to, to watch. I've gone back and viewed you know a couple of movies all the way through. Khan is one of them, and Ricardo Montalban. Ter- that's a terrific villain. You know that he proves that you cannot have a villain who's a cloud. You know he's he he is he's just this this uh, you know this manifestation of evil with with that nice little you know uh, sarcastic edge to him. And you know the, the fine Corinthian leather, that accent, <laughs> yes. and everything else. It's, 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 he's a great villain and yeah. uh, terrific. Yeah, a lot of times he's been named. I know he's been easily named one of the top five movie villains of all time. Can you, off the top of your head, think of a villain that sort of would trump him? Well, you know the AFI uh, did their hundred hundred uh, heroes and villains survey a few years ago, and I'm not sure where he popped up on that. I know, although he know he was on the list. I think the top uh, villain of all time is Hannibal Lecter. Oh, so, really? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think we like our villains. The villains that sort of last with us are the ones that are more like us, more human 
Um, we don't look for our villains in outer space because they're right down the street from us. Those are the ones that scare us most. So it's Robert Mitchum in, in Night of the Hunter. It's um, it's Hannibal Lecter. It's it's these kinds of things that could be just right around the corner for yeah. us too. Yeah. Now, um, nineteen eighty two uh, Wrath of Khan comes out. A lot of people talk about Ricardo Montalban saying he's got a prosthetic chest. <laughs> and uh, when he died, uh, was it? I don't know if it was early this year or late last year. Mm-hmm. We uh, we ran. I wrote an obituary for him, and I spent at least two hours that day researching whether or not Montalban was wearing a rubber chest or not. And the um, the consensus being he was not. That he really did work out, and that that was a lot of, but that but a lot of uh, makeup and shadowing was used. Steroids. Yeah, to give him that nice firm chest that uh, someone who is probably uh, yeah he was ripped i mean that he chest was ripped was, it, was, it was like you know vein popping yeah type of but stuff. they say That's, you know they say it was his real chest but that you know some makeup uh, was used to kind but of, i bet that wasn't his hair <laughs> i hope not that uh that uh the episode that it's based on space seed was i guess it was on our list of the top five uh star trek episodes of all time in this week's paper um and that's where you first see him as uh as Khan, who is abandoned on uh a de- a de- not a dead planet, but what will become a dead planet, and uh, left to rot there until um, he's rediscovered here in Star Trek Two. I, this is my favorite movie. I don't think I have no shame in saying that uh, I can quote pretty much every single con line. Yeah, uh, go, going back as I have, like I said, to this one, to uh, Star Trek Four: Voyage Home, a little bit of the first one uh, that I've have over the years. Certainly, that was my favorite until. Until, and we'll get to this later, the most recent. Really? Did uh, any any tears roll down your cheek when uh, Spock dies at the end? Um, No, because I wasn't that emotionally connected to to the uh, situation. I may have sat there and smirked a little bit uh, by doing that. I was hoping that, uh, just like that bad movie I watched last night, that next day air, when people start getting killed at the end of them, I'm like, thank God, you know, (laughs) get it over with. Yeah. So I think I may have had the same kind of feeling with Spock at that time in my life. I I was a very jaded young man. Um. I remember uh, they gave it away ahead of time that someone's going to die in this episode, and uh, it seemed kind of a no-brainer that it'd be him. It starts the story arc that would take uh, three movies to conclude of of his death and his resurrection, um, and uh, it kind of provides the foundation for these three movies that makes them a little bit better than they would have been normally otherwise. I don't think there's too many other Star Trek movies except for with Picard and the Borg, where you have this continuing storyline. Yeah, you, you really do need something that's going to link these kinds of stories together. Otherwise, you end up getting like you know the first one, Star Trek The Motion Picture, where it is just the fireworks, just the eye candy. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, you can either have that you know, 52-minute episode, a TV episode type of thing, you know, set up, crisis, resolution, uh, or you can stretch it out over two or three movies like the, as they did here. So it, it, it appeared to work out pretty well, at least at the box office. Interesting thing about this movie, directed by Nicholas Meyer, and I don't know who that is, but I'm betting you do. Oh, Nicholas Meyer, he's a he's a, a author. Uh, I know I know his first movie that he came out with was one called The Great Train Robbery, which was somewhere around seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. Had uh, Sean Connery. It was based on one of one of the old Great Train robberies that has been in England or Scotland, something in the past. It was it was an exciting movie. It came out about the same time as Man Who Would Be King, so it had that same kind of sort of epic adventure type of angle to it. I I liked his movie uh, The Seven Percent Solution. It was a Sherlock Holmes 
um, mystery of sorts, but the biggest mystery is is how Sherlock Holmes could solve all those cases while he was uh, hooked on cocaine. <laughs> um, uh, Nicole Williamson played um, Holmes, and Alan Arkin played Doctor Watson. And Arkin is one of my favorite actors of all time, so I, I could watch him in anything. So, so yeah, Meyer um, may have been sort of a flavor of the moment at the time that Khan was was made and he was hired for that as a replacement for wise who hadn't gotten into the kind of adventure stuff like like fans wanted uh and and, and he had proven with movies like great train robbery that he could deliver that kind of thing to them now uh starting with the next uh movie the director's chairs is turned over to cast members starting with 1984's star trek 3 the search for spock my father says that you have been my friend you came back for me you would have done the same for me. Why would you do this? Because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Leonard Nimoy is the director here. I didn't know that. You know what? I, I didn't realize that, that that he had directed two of them. Uh, I knew he did. I, I knew he did. Notes. I knew he did four, but I, did, I knew he didn't do three. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not a bad little director. Uh, if you remember, Three Men and a Baby. I, I totally forgot he had done that one you know, as well. He's, uh, not not too bad with that. Um, he had one other movie that came out, Gene Wilder movie, Lucky in Love, something like that that came out around 1980, 82, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, with Gene Wilder, and I believe it was with Madeline Kahn or Gilda Radner, one of one of his frequent co-stars during that era. But, you know, he's he's got a lighter touch to it, and I think that's what uh, they wanted the franchise to sort of incorporate after, I mean, they're just throwing stuff up on the wall at, at this time. Yeah, when they, and they just see if any of it sticks. Right. They've tried the big splashy special effects. They've tried the you know the grittier you know con like type of adventure, and now they're trying to find a balance between the two of them. And you know, Nimoy might might, might not be a, a bad idea in terms of trying to just strike that balance. The um and and here is also where we begin the uh, the odd and even phenomenon that's <laughs> known. If it's an odd-numbered uh, Star Trek movie, it's generally not considered as good as an even-numbered one. And here's where you see it repeat for the first time. Star Trek three generally not as good as uh, 2 or 4 or even 6. Um, the idea of this movie being that uh, they're going to go back to the planet Genesis to find Spock. Um, because, because somehow he has managed to dump his, uh, you know, all his life experiences into the brain of McCoy. And so they hijack a ship and head back to, to Planet Genesis, where they do indeed find him, the rapidly growing Spock, who grows up to, to adult age just in time for the film to finish. <laughs> you know, And, of course, brings the, uh, the death of Kirk's son. You scare me. You know so much about yeah. these things. You really do. Well, every day I turn around to Sean Daly and I say, you Klingon bastard, you killed my son. He loves it. And then he uh, usually calls HR and asks for a uh, trade in cubicles. <laughs> That brings us to 1986 and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. I can tell you that we're not in the military, and we intend no harm towards the whales. Then what in fact, say? we may be able to help you in ways that, frankly, you couldn't possibly imagine. Or believe, I'll bet. Very likely. You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. Leonard Nimoy behind the director's chair for what is often called the whale movie. 
<laughs> That's how I remember it. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to tell you the title of it, I don't think. The um the that, I, that is that is the the other Star Trek movie that I went back to see. Yeah. Now, um probably a lot of hardcore trekkers out there probably this is this is one of those movies that if you're an 80s fan, you probably love it. If you're a hardcore trekker, Maybe not so much because it's definitely sort of like Star Trek light to some degree. There's a lot more humor. Um, I always think it's kind of cheating. Not as much outer space. Yeah, stuff. it's always cheating when you go back to Earth and have your entire movie. It's kind of like it's like when James Bond films in uh, Southern California. That's cheating. <laughs> but uh, the idea being that once again, an anomaly in space is approaching Earth and um, destroying everything in its path, unless Kirk can somehow manage to save it. And in this case. It's by going back to the late 20th century and getting a humpback whale and bringing it to the future because only it can communicate with the, um, the, the probe that's approaching Earth. That Shatner is so far ahead of his time. That's a, this is, I love the storyline. It's simple. It's clean. It's, well, you, it's, it's also part at that time. It's the, around the first time that people know what Greenpeace is. Yeah. You know, that, that the public awareness is building with regard to environmental, you know, right. ecological issues. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing that Roddenberry would have done if he is in charge of this. He's, yeah, this he's, is a Roddenberry he's, movie. He's, he's, he's ripping this kind of stuff from yeah. the headlines, yeah. not, not giving it to you exactly like, you know, like a, like a, a CSI episode will two weeks after a murder case. He's got the same thing on TV. Yeah. But just those little subtle references to it. Um, this was actually the first Star Trek movie to be shown in the Soviet Union. Um, it was part of a World Wildlife Fund uh, benefit uh, to celebrate the country's ban on whaling. And um, Nimoy actually attended it. Leonard Nimoy t- attended it. And they were surprised that the um, Russian um, viewers laughed at the same scenes that the Americans did, that the humor of it was uh, international. Well, you know, uh, same thing with Charlie Chaplin, same thing with Buster Keaton. William Shatner's humor is universal. That's right. Yeah. He's the Buster Keaton of our day, is that what you're it. saying? That's it. He's Canada's Buster Keaton. <laughs> the, um, this actually was also nominated for four Academy Awards, uh, Best Cinematography, Best Effects, Best Music, and Best Sound. I don't believe it won any of them. I don't think so. Um, the other little tricky thing here uh, in this film, Uhura and Chekhov visit the aircraft carrier USS Enterprise, which is kind of a nice touch. That they go back to that. However, that's not the actual real Enterprise. The uh, the real Enterprise was at sea at the time and unavailable. They had to use the USS Ranger for that. Well, time. they actually made a last minute check. They were just going to take uh, Uhura and uh, check off to Space Mountain <laughs> at Disney World, and they thought that might be just a little bit cheesy. Your masteries of theme parks is astounding. My mastery <laughs> of the eighties will continue to to rule the day. Starting with nineteen eighty nine, our last uh, film of the eighties. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Excuse me. It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? William Shatner, God bless his heart, in the director's seat for this uh, monstrosity of a movie. You know, I, I never saw it, but just reading the synopsis here, where basically Kirk's biggest challenges in this movie are climbing a mountain and teaching campfire songs to Spock. <laughs> that just says it all for me right there, and it makes me really, really happy I had something to do better with my life at that time. It's, it's even worse than you think. If that's all it was about, I'd be happy with it. Sadly, um, Spock's half-brother, Cybok, um, comes out of nowhere 
um, hijacks the Enterprise, takes it to the center of the galaxy where he's sure God exists. And um, so then they go to the planet and they all meet and talk to God. And um, well, a, see, that's where that's where taking Roddenberry's idea of being topical it, that gets taken too far to the extreme. It's it's okay to talk about topical subjects, but when you start getting into uh, start taking popcorn entertainment into let's say um, debatable subjects, topics like uh, religion, for example. That's that's when you start losing. I think some of some of the some of the edge. You're, you're biting off a little bit more than you can chew in, in that kind of regard. And you're going to risk the the risk the alienation of some of your fans right. simply because they don't want to have maybe maybe their maybe their devotion to their religion is stronger than their devotion to Star Trek. Yeah, and and you run that kind of risk you know, by bringing up the topic and, and um, freezing them out. Yeah. Now um, Shatner originally supposedly based Cybok on televangelists, so he wasn't necessarily advocating that there was a god that we can all find, but so much, but advocating that there are these people that would have you believe that, and um, that was what his his approach was. I don't see that so much in the movie now that you t- now that I read that. Yeah, maybe. Um, part of the problems of this movie, um, as it, as it turned out, was that um, Shatner was under a lot of pressure. Um, the success of Star Trek uh, for a Voyage Home, uh, Hollywood really, really wanted to capitalize on the momentum. They they pushed this project along a little fast. Um, Shatner didn't get the writers he wanted. Um, the Writers Guild uh, had a strike, didn't they, in 88? You were like a Shatner apologist here. No, not always. I don't really like uh, any of his TV work, really. But TJ Hooker? No, I can't stand I don't like cop stuff, period. I don't like cop movies, cop shows, or real cops, for that matter. But uh, the Writers Guild... Priceline commercials? No, I kind of like those. Have you ever seen the movie Free Enterprise? Where Shatner plays himself. It's all about truckers. Oh, no, I've heard about that. I have it on DVD. You got to see it. I mean, uh, it's it's hilarious. Um, But the Writers Guild strike comes in at this point and and disrupts the movie. Um, Just about every bad thing that can happen during a production of a movie happens, and it happens to Shatner during the making of this movie. I mean, so you don't have a great script. You don't have great writers. You don't have uh, as much time to film it. And, and the result is what I think a lot of people would say is the worst Star Trek movie of all time. Here's a theory for you. Maybe because of all the hell that Shatner went through to make this movie and how lousy it turned out, that may have been his, his penance. You know, what, what, he had to, what he had to do in order to ensure that his career would last here into the uh, 21st century. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. You know, it, it's, it's like that's his, that's his portrait of Dorian Gray right there. <laughs> you know, he, he is able to sustain life because he poured all of his talent, talentlessness <laughs> into that one movie. He's got talent. It's just um, it's so easily mocked. Why? <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, come on. I mean... I mean, he's he's an icon. I mean, well, he sets himself up for mockery. Too. Yeah, I mean, and, sort of, and, I think he he, he, it. he laughs at himself. Yeah, he definitely does court it to the point of being you know, a ham, a, a a glory hog. He wants you to make fun of him. It's it's a little bit funnier when somebody's just sort of sitting there and they make you can make fun of him and they take it well and dish it back a little. Yeah, he will make sure that he is in the spotlight someplace and saying, "Here, why don't you poke fun at me?" Yeah, type of thing. So that'll get a little old. Now, uh, the, the entire original cast of the movie would, would survive for one more movie, 1991's uh, The Undiscovered Country, where the Federation finally makes peace with the Klingons. Which I think we're, we're actually banned from talking about we're here banned on from talking about. It's a great movie. I, as a Trekker, I love it. As an 80s fan, we're not going to talk about it. Instead, 
We're going to invite our, our non-Trekkie friend in here to uh, do the segments. Uh, here comes Sean Daly after the segments. No, Sean. <laughs> Vulcan <laughs> butt pinch. That's not the oh, Vulcan that nerve grip he's trying to do on you. Oh, little rascal, get over here. my neck either. <laughs> Ah, by the sound of the tone, it must be time for Reader Mailbag. And with me is... What the hell do you have on your face? It's a Wookiee mask. Why are you wearing a Wookiee mask? This is a Star Trek show. Uh, Wookiees weren't in Star Trek? No. All right, hold on. Uh, look at my shirt. It's tweaky. Bitty, 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 bitty. I love Star Trek. That's Buck Rogers, man. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, Give up? Yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, Hey, as usual, we picked out some great emails for Tribbles! Yes! yes yeah, I love those tribbles. You know it's not a kind of drink, right? <laughs> as usual, Sean Daly has picked out actually the only email we have this week because it's about us. Ooh, our favorite. Yes, this is a great, great letter. Everyone listen up. This is from Ron H. in Iamsville, Maryland, which I believe is not near Silver Spring, Burtonsville, Crofton, or anything... Like that. I believe that Iamsville is out in Frederick County in central Maryland. But I could be wrong. Whatever. I'm guessing. Anyway, Ron H. says, gentlemen. I like that. The collective gentlemen. Not trying to hurt any feelings like most of our listeners. Love the show. I finally caught up after having started with an episode one year ago. I must say, you guys have made my long daily commute across the Maryland countryside so much more bearable. Keep it up. However... I must take slight umbrage with Steve. Ooh. Ooh, I like this. I like the way this is going. I know. For comments from the recent Michael McKeon episode, the great Michael McKeon episode, our last episode, which some people say is our best. Best interview. You were really taciturn and surly throughout, though. Truculent, standoffish. <laughs> ah, you finally opened that thesaurus I gave you. Yeah, thank anyway, you. Anyway, first some background. My formative years in the 80s were spent at the University of Maryland. Go Terps! Ostensibly in search of an engineering degree. That search, while ultimately successful, included many forays into extracurricular activities, which usually include lots of beer and U of M babes and the occasional Ravens concert. Raised on the radio! Let's hear it, Shawnee. My chief cohort in those forays was a high school buddy who to this day remains one of my closest friends. In fact, it was this 80s buddy who turned me on to Stuck in the 80s last year. He is your biggest fan here in Maryland and has single-handedly increased your listener pool by almost half a dozen. Wow, we're up to at least 12. Uh, He constantly wears a stuck-in-the-80s T-shirt that I gave him and is always challenging me to 80s music trivia. All right, our kind of guys. That friend, Sean and Steve, is none other than Basil Parlett of Crofton, Maryland. Not Basil, as Steve pronounced on the McKeon podcast. Basil and I discuss all your podcasts when we get together, much to the dismay of our wives. Yeah, that's how it works. We constantly drink to Natalie Diffenball. Drink, drink, drink to And we both have our kids listen to 80s anthems and reciting lines from 80s classic movies. Steve, I thought you were supposed to be the sensitive one, but it was Sean that correctly pronounced Basil's name. You so insistently mispronounced his name that has sullied your sensitive facade. Finally! 
<laughs> a chink in the arm. Really? That's what it took? That said, thanks for the podcast and many hours of 80s memories. You guys are great. And I love the recollections evoked as you tri- trigger long-lost 80s memories. You've got me searching for my own Natalie Diffenball. Drink, drink, drink. Two times in one show. Yes, in hopes of resurrecting those 80s days of yours. Uh, let me just say, be careful. Be careful with your own personal Diffenbaugh's, my friend. Yours, firmly stuck in the 80s, Ron H., Iamsville, Maryland. Great letter. Very good. I Finally, feel- I'm the sensitive one, and I'm wearing a handsome suit today. You're just going to milk that for all it's I, worth, I really aren't you? Am. It cost me 300 bucks, which I'm sure isn't a lot for a suit, but in daily world it is. So there you go. We need more letters. Right, Steve? Yeah, we don't get a lot anymore. Tell us your stories. Tell us which one of us you like better. If it's Sean, they'll get right on the air. If it's Steve, 86. I don't know. Just send, say something. Give us some feedback. Hey, it's, I'm notorious for mispronouncing names. You are. Do you do it purposely? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, Kashmir. <laughs> uh, Spandau Ballet. <laughs> no, really? Tweaky? No Star Trek? No. Anyway, tell the people where they can send more uh, reader uh, mail. As always, send your reader emails to stuckinities at tempe.com. No basil required. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. Hey, it's the segment where I play a snippet of a movie from the 80s, and if you can get it right, uh, I still have those movie posters for the informers. Got a couple uh, books to give away. What else? Some E.T. soap. Uh, The Air Supply Greatest Hits. We'll give that away. (sighs) Do we have to? Yeah. I kind of to hold on to it. Michelle. Michelle sent it back to us. She didn't want it. Is that really what happened? Whatever. Yeah. Jeez, I'm nice. Curious. Pay attention. Here was the last week's mystery clip. One unused prophylactic. One soiled. Ah, the Blues Brothers, the great Frank Oz. You wanted Chicago. Yeah, and Frank Oz, the voice of Yoda. There's a great Star Trek character. Come on, man, ah. you're killing me. We had no winners, though, did we? Plenty of winners. What? Names you've never heard of. Should I read these names? Yeah, please. You? Save me the All right, the winners. We had Phil from Adelaide, Australia. Australia loves us. We're so hot down under. When are we taking the show to Australia? Come on. Why are you looking at me like that? We, you know how long it would take to get to Australia from here? I We'd mean, have a great time. We could reconnect boat. emotionally. <laughs> take a boat. A little uh, small, yeah. like a 12-foot 12, 12 sailboat. How one of us throws the other overboard? Anyways. Anyway, Mark the Mailman in Michigan. John Stolick of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andy Wankel from Minneapolis. Joe Blanger of Texas. Bob Battams. Corey Coffin from Cambridge, Ontario. Great Corey name. Coffin. Man. That's a movie name. Yeah. Corey Coffin. Slick McFavorite from Denver, Colorado. That's got to be Squires. Is that Squires? I, Slick McFavorite? No. Uh, Squires usually is pretty straight up. Uh, and uh, Enrique Betnier from Stockholm, Sweden. Ah, Scandinavia. Mama, no. What if he knows my uh, prom date my senior year? Maybe. What was her name? Maria. Maria. And you, uh, you did or didn't have sex with her? Duh, did not. Yeah. Enrique Betnier. I might have botched that name. Enrique. That's a great name, though. Stockholm, Sweden. I look forward Sounds to like the Sounds like a Bond email. villain. I look forward to Sweden turning against us. Nah. The whole Sweden, The land Norway. of the midnight sun loves me. I don't. <laughs> Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Oh, my, oh my God. Mama. Any guesses, Sean? That was obviously cute little Moffat from Wrath of Khan. First of all... <laughs> It's from Battlestar Galactica. 
Moffat is? Yes. Damn. What do you do at night <laughs> if you're not watching sci-fi I read, movies? I read books Yeah, about Mark touched, Twain. I guarantee a book hasn't touched <laughs> your fingers since like third grade. Ah, I have no idea what this movie clip is then. If it's you know it, Moffitt. then it's not Moffat. Did you have a Moffat toy when you were a kid? I still have a Moffat toy. Yeah. yeah it's In the trunk? <laughs> Vegas girlfriend Speak is Speak not of the trunk. Ah. It's going on vacation with when, me. No, you're not bringing the, the whole trunk, The whole you? trunk. When you open the trunk, does it glow gold like yeah, in Pulp Fiction? Like, exactly. Nice. And Samuel L. Jackson kills somebody every time. <laughs> if you know it, email us at stuckinnews.tempe.com because only Sean Daly can call you. Bitty, 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 bitty. That's good. Ah, uh, the mystical refrain of Name That 80s Tune. Hey, signature event here on the podcast. See if you can name a snippet of a song from the 80s. If you do, um, Sean Daly is going to give you his old TV shirt. The one that was so mocked. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I got pummeled for my, my old TV shirt. It was a fitted shirt. It was a little too fitted. Yeah. Yeah, little, little man booby. But that's okay. But people pummel me for it. Like was showing up. They're Bo Brummel walking around out there. <laughs> You gonna give it away to the winner? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, don't watch it first. <laughs> no, I won't. I'll have my man musk on it. Nice. Pay attention. Here was last week's mystery tune. Yeah, no surprise. That sticks with the best of times. I wouldn't have the kind of no. Yeah. Or when you're alone with me? <laughs> with the trunk? Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, nobody won. Sadly, you have a bunch of new names to read. Yes! Uh, the winners for this week's name that needs to include Aaron from Indiana, Don in the Sticks, oh, Dina Blue in Temecula, California. Dina Blue. I've rented some of her movies. She's very good. <laughs> Uh, Basil Parlett in Crofton, Maryland, Basil. near Annapolis. Gary and Gilroy, our favorite. Chain lift. You don't want to get in a scrap with chain lift. Chain yeah. lift in Winter Park. Chain Alejandro li- Cardoso Solis from Tijuana, Mexico. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Cool. Alejandro Cardoso Solis. Are we allowed to even send packages to Mexico now? Depends on what you're sending. <laughs> I think going in, you're all right. Coming out, they're that's cool. God, us. we have a lot of we have a lot of international listeners. I love that. It's great. Yeah, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery tune. Oh yeah, I get it. the Star Trek theme. Flash, ah, master of Star Trek. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm out of sci-fi movies, my friend. You are. You're out of time as well. <laughs> you know, I better leave soon. What are you itching for? I, my Wookiee mask gave me a rash. Are you sure it was the Damn mask? Damn you, Wookiees! Yeah, I gotta go. You and Persol are having a love fest. I feel like I'm intruding. Okay. Hey, Sean's out of here, but remember, send those answers to stuckinaysattempe.com, and we'll be right back after these messages. If you're not ready to give up on mullets in Madonna, log on to Stuck in the 80s, just one of the many blogs you'll find at tampabay.com, the website of the St. Petersburg Times. Relive the music, movies, and culture of the greatest decade ever, only at tampabay.com. Look what the computer wizards at Apple have come up with now. It has the power of these two computers. 
a built-in disk drive. It can run over 10,000 different programs. You get everything you need to hook it right up to your TV. You can even add a mouse. Introducing the Apple IIc. Now comes the real magic. You can take it home for under $1,300. And we are back with Times film critic Steve Persall. Just in time to talk about the TV series, Star Trek, which started up in 1987. Mm-hmm. I'm only guessing. Oh, that you're talking about the next generation. The next generation. Never watched it. Never a single episode. I think you could probably put my experience with next generation in one episode and still have plenty of room left for commercials. Yeah, I did not watch it that much. Like I watched the original series. I think I know every original series uh, plot by by heart. But the next generation, there's too much of it to uh, to know. It uh, it started out. It started out in syndication, which is kind of bizarre. With the two-hour pilot encounter at Farpoint, it had 178 episodes over seven seasons, ran longer than any other Star Trek series, and ended with the finale, All Good Things, on May 23rd, 1994. But it does introduce us to the cast that would take us into the next several Star Trek movies. And mm-hmm. so I have to ask you, because I know you know the cast. Yes. Which cast do you prefer, the the Jean-Luc Picard-led cast or the, uh, the, the James Tiberius Kirk cast? In, in, term, in terms of watching and enjoying and knowing them, uh, certainly it's, it's the Shatner cast. It's the original cast for me. Um, th- th- you could not grow up in the late 60s and through the 70s and into the 80s, even if you were like me and, and just re- totally resisted Star Trek you know, shows, movies, and everything else, you couldn't help but learn about them. You couldn't help but pick it up, picking it up uh, through the, the pop culture grapevine, all the catchphrases, some of the scenarios, who Khan is, you know, just, just, the, just the idea of you know, looking up in the sky, Khan. I mean, it became, um, I won't say, even say a cliche, it became an archetype of, of the pop culture at that time. So I don't recall anything like that coming out of the next generation. Uh, I, I was older at that time, and certainly I was able to pay attention even less to anything I was not interested in by that time. I had that right as an adult. Um, and I, I just don't really connect with anything with that. Actually, I, uh, I, I took uh, Princess Di, the lovely Princess Di, who people may know from my Reeling in the Years blog at blogs.tampabay.com slash movies. I uh, took her to New York uh, a few years ago to see um, – couple of shows and one of them was the tempest and uh, william shakespeare's play only because it had patrick stewart starring in it and um she was even less impressed than i was at that time she was of course hey there's picard up on stage to start with and at intermission we gave our tickets to a couple of homeless people out on the streets and let them go inside someplace warm for a couple hours really yeah yeah he's probably isn't he probably you have to say that he's probably the best trained oh yeah of any uh, Definitely, and, and and he's one of those actors too that I, I appreciate him more when I see him doing comedic types of roles. Uh, he's he's done a couple of things in just small little independent films, uh, often with sort of uh, gay themes, gay comedy themes to them. Yeah, and he just has that kind of that twinkle in his eye, uh, and that and that voice, that very authoritative voice. He he uses that. Very well. He could use it to be commanding, but he uses it to sort of be playful. Hey, before we go, I want to make sure we talk about the brand new movie. You haven't seen a lot of Star Trek movies, right? No, and and apparently I'm not alone either. Uh, One of the uh, movie ticket selling uh, websites, I'm not sure if it's movietickets.com or Fandango, 
uh, just sent me an email today about the fact that they, they surveyed 6,000 of their users and asked them how many Star Trek movies they had, they had seen in their lives out of the 10 so far and the 11th one coming out. How many, what percentage do you think of people, those 6,000 said they have never seen a Star Trek movie? Not one. These are all moviegoers. These, are, Not, movie these goers. are moviegoers. Oh, I don't know, 15%? 32%. Jeez. Almost one-third of those 6,000 surveyed said they've never seen a Star Trek movie. Wow. That, that So that made me feel good. I felt like I was, I feel like I'm, I'm more of a Star Trek expert than those 32% of people at no least. No kidding. And only 10% said they've seen all 10 of them. Wow. But the new movie that we saw kind of restarts the franchise. We're back, um, and we witness um, the birth of... Uh, James Tiberius Kirk. You know what? This movie grabbed me right off the bat because I think the, the one thing I don't like about movies that have cult followings to them is that the movies are typically like inside jokes. You have to know everything about this thing to start with. You, you, must have, you should have read all those Tolkien books before seeing those Lord of the Rings things because if something escapes you, well, blah, blah, blah. I, I heard that so much when I gave you know, the, the, the second one, Two Towers, a B plus. Well, you, if you had read the book, then you would know. And No, I don't want to have to do that before I go to a theater. What I like is when you have something that's a cult, has a cult following like this, but even the, even the followers find something new in it. And I could, I could sense in that theater the other day those times when this movie ended up giving people who thought they knew the stuff, this saga backwards and forwards, gave them something new, gave them something fresh. Uh, and it starts right off the bat with, did you, did you know how James, did you know James Kirk was born under fire? Literally born under yeah, fire? In space. Wow. You know, <laughs> and you could, t- you could sense in the audience that people were like, that is cool. Never thought about that before. Did you know how Bones McCoy gets, you know, got his nickname? Don't blow it. But, uh, but, you know, you could sense when that is revealed. The, the, the laughter, the joy, the sense of discovery that was in the audience at that time. It was really a nice feeling in, in that theater. I didn't feel left out, and the people who normally would be making people like me feel left out had to feel like they were yeah. learning something, discovering something along the way, too. I, I enjoyed it. I love the scene. Um, my favorite scene, it happens real early in the movie, um, the, uh, the Kobayashi Maru <laughs> is uh, we see... And, and anyone who's ever seen Star Trek II Wrath of Khan knows, has, gets to see the Kobayashi Maru there. It's recreated here, and you see how Kirk defeats it. And it becomes a major plot line in the movie. And I, could, I was writhing around my seat like a like, like major fanboy when they were showing that. I thought, J.J. I thought Abrams has, you know, as he can do whatever he wants for the rest of the movie. He's, he's given the Kobayashi Maru its, its due. Now, see, that's, that's something that had not stuck with me through all these years. It means something to you guys, kind of guys. But some things that do, either things that I've picked up from comedians, you know, punchlines that they use along the way. You know, it's, they, they, the, the standard thing is that the first guy who dies on Star Trek from the, from the crew is always wearing red. I know that because I've heard enough comedians mention that in their acts before. Uh, and then when you see in the, in the first huge, well, the second huge adventure uh, sequence in this movie, the first Federation cadet to die is in a red uniform. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I was looking at Diane. I was like, hey, you know, it's red, red shirt, red shirt type yeah. thing. So you, there's, there's enough in there that 
if you're just casual like I am, yes, it makes you feel, yeah, you're, you're one of us. You're here. And at the same time, if you've never seen a Star Trek movie before, never had any kind of inclination to, never had any kind of, if you were hermetically sealed in a vault for the past 40 years since that, that show came out on TV, you know, you, you can walk into this movie and you can just enjoy yourself a great popcorn summer movie here, too. Could it be this year's Iron Man? It, it it could be this year's Iron Man. It will not be this year's Dark Knight. But it's certainly, and I said in my review, it sets up, it sets the bar pretty high. Uh, Wolverine didn't quite do it, but uh, this sets the bar pretty high for every other movie this summer. Iron Man would have been the best and biggest grocer of the summer if it hadn't been for Dark Knight. And maybe that wouldn't have happened like that if, hadn't, if not for Heath Ledger, too. So. Yeah, true enough. That's all there is for Star Trek in the 80s. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to go home and uh, steal all my Star Trek DVDs and bring them in and like hide them around Persal's desk, force him to be a fanboy by the time the next movie comes out. I am not as, uh, I do not have that kind of animosity with myself. I will sign off simply by saying, live long and prosper. <laughs> Very nicely done. In the meantime, we'll all stay here firmly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is produced by the St. Petersburg Times and TampaBay.com. Read the blog at blogs.tampabay.com and remember to subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. Hey, hey, welcome. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs>